Let's uh, Second Kings six, and we're going to start in eight. This is then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, "In such and such a place shall be my camp." <clears throat> And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place where the man of God told him, and he warned him of, and saved himself there not once nor twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not shew me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel all the things that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. And he said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told him, saying, He is in Dothan. Therefore he sent thither the horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed about the city. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed about the city, both of horses and chariots. And the servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? And Elisha, um, he said, and he answered and said, Fear not, for they that are with us are more than they that are uh, with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about. And the question I had was, did Elisha see God's army, or did he just know that they were there? And it didn't really seem like an important question to me to dig into. I was just an interesting thought. Did he just have knowledge that God was always with him? Well... It doesn't say that Elisha said, open his eyes so he can see what I see. It says, open his eyes so that he can see. Because Elisha, I don't think Elisha needed to see his army, to see the uh, God, army of God to be at peace. But he needed his servant to act like he was on the winning side. Like God was there, because he knew God was there to protect him. I think the physical representation of God's spiritual army was for his servant. And Jesus uh, said in John twenty twenty nine that to Thomas he said you he said you see me and you believe he said blessed are those that believe without seeing me. So the more I looked into it, the more I didn't see the need for it. God gives us revelation. God gives us everything we need to get through a circumstance. So if Elisha needed to see his army, then he would have saw his army. But move that down a little bit. So. One of the things that make me think that Elisha didn't see his army or didn't need to see his army was that he didn't use the army. He didn't sit God's army on him after he said, see this army. If you continue in 18, it says, When they came down to him, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. And Elisha said unto them, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them into Samaria. So the servant of God, to the servant of God, he says, "Hey, open his eyes so he can see that you're here for us." And then to the army of Syria, he says, "Blind them so they can't see the truth." Now, I think that is a great physical representation, a great representation of the Word of God. 
I don't think that the Syrian army was blind in the sense that they couldn't see their hand in front of their face. Because it doesn't say that they stumbled and tripped their way into Samaria. It says, Elisha went out and said, hey, follow me. And I would never go up to a blind person and walk in front of them and say, follow me. Now maybe the army of God was there to lead them by hand. I don't know. But it appears to me that they could completely see where they were going. They just didn't know where they were going. God had blinded them to the truth. God had blinded them to their plan. God had blinded them to where they were going. So the servant saw something from God, and so did the Syrian army. And I could never fault the servant in this situation for crying out. It doesn't take anywhere near an entire army around me. Bills pile up. And work piles up at the same time, which doesn't seem possible, but it happens. And I want to look over to Laura and say, Alas, my master, what shall we do? But um, let's, uh, let's turn to Mark 8. We're going to look at different places where people got their sight. and what it cost them. What they needed to see and why they needed to see it. Mark 8, and we're going to start in 23. It says, And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town, and when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands upon him and asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men walking around as trees. After that, he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and his sight was restored, or his sight, and he saw every man clearly. So, there's this situation, and I think two others, we're going to look at another one here in a little bit, where he uses spit to heal someone, to heal their vision. And the whole thought of that is a little bit gross. I think that the spit was God doesn't need spit to heal anyone. He doesn't need anything to heal anyone. He just needs to want to heal them, and he does. So I think the idea of the spit was for their spiritual and emotional healing. For some of these people, they probably had a lot of resentment, intentional or not, built up for all the people around them. In that time, a beggar wasn't just considered physically unclean, which they were. They sat in the dirt and begged. And they got every bit of dirt kicked up off all the shoes that walked around them. So, but they weren't just considered that physically unclean. Beggars were considered and looked at as spiritually unclean. The only reason God would leave someone like that is if they were a sinner. That's what the, the Pharisees and the scribes, everybody believed. That's where the, the parable of um, Lazarus at the gate. He was, the rich man must have been blessed. Because and right with God because he was rich. And the beggar must have been this evil sinner that was going to hell because he was a beggar. How many times do you think that these beggars, these blind people, had been spit on? How many times had they raised their cups hoping for mercy and alms and got nothing but name-calling and spit? And if they had just been healed... Every single time they 
heard a voice that sounded familiar, of someone that, that spit, someone that treated them horribly or called them a name, that would be a horrible, traumatizing experience. You go to witness to someone and, no, oh, I really don't want this person to go to heaven. I remember that voice. I remember where that came from. And I think I've mentioned this in a sermon before. I have a, a similar situation. There's a machine at the shop that, that nearly killed me. Should have, could have killed me. And when it happened, I was being complacent. I wasn't dealing with sin in my life. <clears throat> well, I was dealing with sin in my own way. I was fighting in my own way. I'll just slowly but surely get myself out of sin. And in my eyes, I was doing so much better. And that machine got a hold of me and just about killed me. And, and right before it did, it made a very unique sound. And it probably makes that sound hundreds of times per job. I don't really remember ever hearing it before that day. But I hear it all the time now. Every single time that machine, it just, that, that quick of a noise, I flinch. Not intentional, I don't think about it. If I'm not the one running it, I look over, okay, the safeties are on. Praise God. If I am the one running it, I still check to see if the safety's on. But I immediately do a recap. Oh, Lord, is there something I need to look at? Is there something that I'm not dealing with? And if not, praise God, that sound is just a representation of the day that God turned my life around. If there is, praise God, that's the... God's reminded me not to go back into that. I wouldn't be here today, obviously, if I had died. But I wouldn't be here today preaching. And I'd never see you all again, because if I had died that day, I'd, I wouldn't have made it to heaven. I was as, as far down as possible. I thought I was getting better. But that's what made it worse, because I was blind to how bad I was. So, I think this is what this kind of represents to me. Because that blind man could not see Jesus' face. Couldn't see the look of love in his eyes, the care and concern. But I bet he heard him spit. And just for a second thought, man, I thought I was going to get mercy. But I'm going to get shame again. Then that spit touched his eyes. And he got just a little bit of light. And I bet his perspective changed pretty quick. Lord, spit on me one more time, because I'm almost there. God needs us to be able to see clearly. Every single time he hears someone spit from that point in time on, there might be a little bit of a flinch. Every single time I hear that machine kick, there's a little bit of a flinch. Let's turn to a, another example real quick. Uh, John 9, 1. The first guy, he wasn't born blind. Because it says when he first started to see... He said, I see men walking around as trees. 
And he would have no reference of either of those things if he had never seen before. Not a man, tree, or much less a walking tree. So Jesus, and uh, starting off from one there, it says, And Jesus passed by and saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, and he anointed his eyes of the blind, anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay, and said, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is by interpretation sent. And he went his uh, way, therefore, and washed and became seeing. So Jesus knelt down, and this time he didn't just spit in his eyes. He spit and rubbed mud in his eyes. I cannot imagine allowing anyone to make a mud ball with some spit and rub it in my eyes or anywhere. The shame of that seems like it would be a lot for me. But I bet at this point in time, this is later on in his ministry, I bet at this point in time, pretty much every lame, sick, blind person had heard about this, had heard about the, the other people that he had healed, and they didn't care what he did to heal them. He just wanted to be, they just wanted to be healed. And I can't imagine trying to explain that to someone. Or I can't imagine trying to explain that to someone because that mach- uh, story I was talking about with that machine... When that guy ran into somebody else that had been another beggar, he says, hey, you know, how, how was your day today? And that, the beggar that hasn't been healed yet says, it was all right. I, you know, I got enough money for a meal, but I did get spit on a few times. And the second guy, praise God, I got spit on too. It was the best day of my life. I bet the other guy said, you might be a little nuts. We get spit on all the time. What makes this different? Because Jesus chose to spit on me. And we as Christians spend our whole life trying to explain to people, if we're witnessing correctly, we spend our whole life trying to explain to people what the difference is between their suffering and our suffering. We spend our whole life, and someone says, well, yeah, you act like you're doing better, but you're in the same experiences, same problems that I'm having. Why is you getting spit on better than me getting spit on? And I tell somebody, they ask some, what some of the greatest moments of my life are. One of the greatest moments of my life is when I was laying on the floor over there nearly dead. It is a blessing to me that I was nearly killed in my shop. Just as much as it was a blessing to this man that he was spit on by God. And I used to, I used to tell people, I was witness, and I say, you know, if you live your whole life by this book, and you get to the end and it's not true, at least you lived a good life. But that's not true. If this book isn't true, then we're just suffering for no reason. 
if this book isn't true, it says in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 that if this isn't true, we're miserable. Let's, uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Keep something here. We're going to come back. We're going to read 16 down through 20. It says, For if the dead rise not, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain. Ye are yet in your sins. Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ Christ are perished. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, of all men we are most miserable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. So you can't tell someone just live if you know, it's a good life. At least you, at least you have been a good person if you live by this book. And they would have been. But they would suffer for nothing if they if this book isn't true. That's not giving them sight. That's tra- giving them one delusion over another. They were blind, and now they're just blind to what their walk is going to look like. In uh, 21, it says, For since by man came death, by man also the resurrection of the dead. It's another representation of that machine, of the spit. By the spit came shame, but it also came healing. That machine almost brought death, but it also brought life. Think about these men trying to explain. You have to understand, you want this. You want Jesus to stand before you. It doesn't matter if he spits on you. It doesn't matter if he rubs dirt in your eyes. It doesn't matter if you just touch the hem of his garment. You're going to be healed by what happens next. Uh, go back to uh, John 9. We're going to stay in this story most of the rest of the way. We're going to start off in 8. We left off. And the neighbors, therefore, and they which before had seen him that he was blind, said, Is not this who sat and begged? And some said, This is he. And others said, Well, it looks like him. But he said, I am him. Therefore they said unto him, How were thine eyes opened? And he answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And I went and washed and received his sight. He left out what he made that clay with. And you wouldn't have to tell me to go wash either. I would have been on my way there. So then said they unto him, Where is he? And he said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees him that was aforetime blind, and it was on the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again the Pharisees also asked him, saying how he had received his sight, and he said unto them, He put clay upon my eyes and washed, and I do see. So therefore said some of the Pharisees, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Others said, How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They say unto the blind man again, What sayest thou of him, 
that hath opened thine eyes. And he said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had, that had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents and said, uh, of him that had received his sight and said, Is this your son? Who ye say was born blind? How doth he now see? His parents answered him and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now hath opened, or by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age. Ask him and he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents for the, uh, feared the, for they feared the Jews because the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was the Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. Therefore said his parents, He is of age, ask him. Then again they called the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise, we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know is where I was blind, I now see. Then they said to him again, What did he to thee? How did he open his eyes? And he answered, I've already told you. And ye did not hear. Wherefore will you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, Thou art his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spake to Moses. As for this fellow, we know not. And the man answered and said unto them, where, Why, herein is a marvelous thing that you don't know where he came from, yet he opened my eyes. Now we know that God he, heareth not sinners, but if a man be a worshiper of God and doeth him or, and doeth his will, he heareth him. Since the word began, it was not. Or since the world began, it was not heard that a man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And they answered and said, "Thou wast altogether born in sin, and you teach us." And they cast him out. And we'll see here in the last portion here that having sight isn't always a good thing. It's not always a compliment. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when they had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped. And Jesus said, For judgment am I come into this world, they which, that they which see might see not, and they which see, or they which see not might see, and they which see might be made blind. And the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said, Are we blind? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now ye say, We see, therefore your sin remains. So the first thing that they do to try and muddy up the situation is they try to prove it was a trick. Now, I don't think they actually had any doubt who this was. But they needed all of the people hearing them to have that doubt. They'd probably seen him a thousand times begging. But they, uh, it's got to be someone else. You know, he, he, someone's playing a trick. This is one of those magic tricks you see. You know, there's there's twins or, or they're just a look-alike. This man who had been born 
blind and been blind his whole life, probably learned every single argument that he used against them from them. He probably asked them, the scribes and the Pharisees, you guys know the Bible, you guys know the Word more than, than anyone else. Why won't God heal me? Why does it feel like I'm alone? Why, does it, why was I born this way? And they probably came to him and said, you're in sin somewhere. There's a hidden sin in your life. Or your parents sinned and, and you, God doesn't hear sinners. So when this man, so when they said this man must be a sinner, he's like, whoa, wait. Remember when you told me that God doesn't hear sinners? Because that can't be the case, because God heard him. I can see. They're like, well, where is he from? He's probably thinking, well, why are you asking me? I just now got my sight. And he said, this is amazing. You said that when Christ came, he would heal the sick. He opened my eyes, and you're asking me where he came from. Can't you see this? And it wasn't the physical sight that he was he was asking about. He was just, you know, you can't see what's right in front of you. But they could. They could see it. That was why their sin was so bad. And no one no one likes their own arguments being used against them. I've got a kid just old enough to start doing that, and I do not like it at all. <laughs> the other day, she's watching one of her shows, a situational show where it teaches you situational experiences, and one of the shows said the kid did something, something bad happened to the kid, and the little song that came on was, you take something bad and turn it into something good. Okay? Well, Laura caught her making a mess. She ran up. She said, what you're doing is bad. She goes, turn it into something good, Mom. So, <laughs> but this is how you can tell who you're dealing with. This is how you can tell when you're dealing with someone who is blind to the truth. And uh, these conversations usually happen between Christians. Because you tell someone... I'm believing for healing. Or, man, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, but God will provide. Maybe not in these exact words, but they'll get the point across, oh, I feel so sorry for you. You still think God does miracles and works today. No one ever told them that miracles died out with the apostles. But you come back and say, look at this, God God healed me. Remember that one thing I was telling you about? Where God healed me, and I said I needed healing, or or I needed this money, and it's all taken care of. It's amazing. It was a miracle. And then usually, in words pretty close to this, they'll say, "You deceitful person! Why would you try to make me believe that this happened? What did you use besides mud and spit? You had to, you had to have done something. Now, if you had gone to them and said, "I did this research on the internet." I found this miracle research drug and this machine and they put me in the machine, the lights started moving and they put my body back together and they gave me a million dollars afterwards for being part of the research so my healing is taken care of and my money problems are gone too. They all praise God. Because that's something that doesn't take faith. That's something that doesn't take sight. You don't need to see 
it doesn't matter how big the Syrian army is if you can pay the Ethiopian army to come after and, and take care of them. But if you have to trust that God's there, that's where people start getting upset with you or me for having faith. Because they can't see it and they don't want to see it. Because that's a different kind of suffering. Different kind of sight. So in the last portion there, Jesus tells them. And they said, you know, just because you can see doesn't mean you can see. Just because he was blind doesn't mean he was blind. So you're saying we're blind. Oh no, I'm saying you can see. That's why your sin remains. And I would much rather speak to someone in a situation where they were blind to a situation than someone who had their eyes open but their understanding is darkened. And we can only pray that God will open our hearts and our eyes to where we can show that to someone. Where we can enlighten someone through the Scripture. The way that a lot of people see the Christian walk and accuse me of believing in the Christian walk is, I, mean, I wish it was the way they said it was. I mean, Christians, a lot of Christians will ask God, just show me, show me what you want me to do. Show me what I should do next and how this is going to work out. And then you say, well, you were predestined and called. And they say, no, God doesn't have that kind of sight. Well, then what are you asking him to show you? If God can't see what's coming next, don't ask him what's coming next. He can't tell you what to do if what's coming next is just completely random. Or they'll say, well, if predestination and election is true, then you know we're just mindless robots and we go about and it doesn't matter what decisions we make, we're going to go to heaven. I wish. I really do. And back before I turned back to Christ, I prayed that all the time. God, just let me look through my eyes while you do everything right. When we get to heaven, I'll take back over and I can't do anything wrong there. I can't mess it up. I've already made it. I don't pray that anymore because it's not biblical. But it doesn't keep me from wishing that I wasn't here to make the mistakes. What I pray and what we need to pray is that God opens the eyes of our understanding. That God shows us His will and our will and it's always clear. It doesn't seem clear. But it's always clear which one's which. And we need to be able to see the outcome. We need to be able to, to understand the mysteries, not of what we see, but of where we're going. Now let's uh, turn over to Ephesians 3. We're going to read, uh, starting in one there. It says, For this cause I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to uh, given me to you, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. For in other ages it was not made known unto the sons of men, 
as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles, prophets, and prophets by the Spirit. So he said, we need revelation. He said, you guys need to see what I see. He said, God's made it easy for you all. Think about how much easier we have than all the people we read read about in the Bible. Most of the people in the Bible, biblical times, couldn't read. Or couldn't read the Latin or Hebrew or all the different languages it was written in. And Paul's saying, hey, he's revealed this to me. I'm just, here's the words. Here's the plan. This is the mystery that he's revealed in me for you. They were living in hard times. They were living in persecution like I talked about last time. And he's just saying this, don't look at the persecution. Look at, look at what you're supposed to be looking at. Look at, the, look at the plan. Look at where we're going, not where we are. The Syrian army had to have been looking where they're going not to trip over themselves. They didn't know what the outcome was. We don't have to necessarily know where God's taking us specifically. We have to know where God is leading us, where God wants us to be. When I was preparing for this sermon this week, there was a strange memory that popped into my head. There was a, a, a YouTube video I watched a while back, like a 25-second clip. I thought it was the funniest thing. I watched it and I showed it to other people and and laughed when they watched it. And I had no idea why, while I was studying for a sermon on sight and revelation, why was I thinking about some funny video I saw? The video was some third world country. And a bunch of kids are running around in the water and there's a some mothers there, and there's this rope going from one end of the body of water to the other. And there's this little kid, five to eight years old, holding onto the rope, and his feet are up out of the water, and he's screaming, thinking he's going to drown if he lets go of that rope. His mother's standing right next to him. The water's only about that deep. And he's screaming, and I don't know what she's saying, but I'm assuming she's saying, put your feet down. Put your feet down. And he won't do it. He can't even comprehend what she's saying because he's so terrified. And eventually some little girl comes over and starts fighting him, shoving his feet down. And eventually she gets his feet to the ground, and he stops instantly. He knows he's safe. And I always thought, how, how bad, how terrified do you have to be to be in a foot deep of water and not know that you're safe? And then I was sitting there thinking, well, why would God be showing me this? It's just, okay, it's got to just be a memory. Then he revealed to me, so the whole time, the kid was safe. Well, he was only in a foot of deep of water. Of course he was. No, it doesn't matter. You can drown in less than a foot deep of water. Well, there's people all around that they can catch him. If he, no, it doesn't matter. People drown with people around all the time. So. The whole time he was holding on to a rope that was connected to the shore. Didn't matter how deep the water was. Didn't matter if the water was, was rushing. Didn't matter if there was a hundred people there or zero. He was holding on to the shore. He was still in the water he feared when he stood up. 
And that's what Elisha couldn't see, or Elisha's servant couldn't see. It didn't matter. The army was just there to calm him down. He was always safe. They were always going to be blind. The situation didn't change when he saw the army. If one person had died, the servant could have been one of them if there was a fight. But it was the plan he needed to see. It was just, here, calm down enough that I can show you what God's plan is. Just still your mind enough to see, listen, no matter how it goes, we're protected. The plan is, we're going to take these guys into Samaria. You've got to think that servant question the whole thing. Where, why is this army here? Why? We didn't do nothing. Maybe we're just going to leave them out closer to, to Samaria and, and God's army will take care of them there. And then all the looting will be easier because it will be really close to Samaria. But it didn't happen. Let's, uh, let's turn to Daniel 2, 22. Actually, we'll read 21. <clears throat> it says, And he changed the times and the season. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge unto them that know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness and that the light dwelleth and the light dwelleth with him. It says, I thank thee and praise thee, O God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom, might, and hast made known unto me what we desired of thee, for thou hast made known unto me the matters of the king. The first thing he says is, you change the seasons. So if it's snowing, God can change the seasons. He's not denying that there's a problem. But he says, you know, if the king is, is going to hurt us, you can change the king. And then at the end he says, and thank you for giving me the wisdom I need to speak to the king. See, that's my, my prayer for us today, is that know that we don't have blind faith. Blind faith is called ignorance. If we have blind faith, it means that we just, we're going to believe God despite of not knowing the word. If we know the word, we have true faith. We have an intelligent faith. Blind faith means that when the devil comes at you and says, well, what makes you think you can trust God for this? Can't you see everything I have against you? And you say, well, I know it's in the Bible. I heard it once. Where in the Bible is it? I don't know. That's blind faith. Blind faith is... is a faith that can be destroyed by another kind of blindness. I have a sister who grew up hearing all the same things I did. Grew up hearing it from our parents. But it was never explained to her. 
and she got around a family that explained to her the wrong thing. But it was explained to her. It was explained to her from their point of blindness. And she is one of the most lost people she will ever meet through what she's learned in the Bible from this family. Everything that you tell her that disagrees with what she believes from the Bible, that guy has already, that family has already poisoned her to the point where they'll go to, oh, well, no, uh, the book of Hebrews can only be read by people in our religion. You mean Christianity? No, 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 no. I mean, uh, I won't mention the denomination. But it's a very common denomination. And I... This guy told her what she should be looking for. And just said, go into Hebrews and it'll confirm everything I tell you. And she went into Hebrews looking for his truth and found it. She's been blinded. And she can quote more of the Bible than I can. But if you ask her what it means... It's just blindness. And it's, I love her. Lord willing, and the word is there. He can use that to open her eyes. But I, I don't just want to see the word, I want to know it. Lord, I don't want to, I don't want you to show me your army. I want you to show me the plan. Elisha wasn't being attacked because he knew where the army was. He was an attack because he knew where the plan was. If he didn't know the plan, he could have said, hey, their army's going to be here, uh, you need to go ambush them. Or he said, that he knows what you're doing in your bed. So he's, he's, he's alone from this time to this time in his bedroom. Send someone to kill him. That's the only reason why God would be showing me this. No, he was attacked because he knew the plan. And I know we are going to need... There's countless times throughout my life, I'm going to need encouragement. I'm going to need to see the army of God standing all about me so I can calm down just enough to know what the plan is. Not calm down enough to deny the circumstances. Not calm down enough to tell everybody else I feel okay. I need to calm down enough to know what God has for me. So in the end, the answer to my question was, uh, did Elisha see God's army? It doesn't matter. Did the blind man see the spit coming? No, he didn't, but it wouldn't matter. When God gives us sight, we're to expect an army against us. Both from Christians and non-Christians alike. King of Israel hated Elisha. When Syria wasn't going after him, he was. Elisha was in a town that had no physical protection. They had to borrow an axe to build it. Didn't matter. 
his sight, and I hope, doesn't record it, but I hope he took that servant aside and said, here's what I needed you to see. When that happened to me over there, I laid there on the floor and the first words I spoke were to my brother and I said, this is my fault. And I expected that to be my last words ever spoken. That's when God took me aside and said, this is what I need you to see. Yes, from all outward appearances, you should be dead in the next 10 to 15 seconds. You know the stats. You know what happened. You should fade out. But that's not going to happen. He didn't say that's not going to happen. I had to sit there and wonder for a while. But it didn't happen. Because that's what he needed me to see. When you're sitting there next time in the river, and you go to put your feet down, and the devil says, well, the water's a little deeper this time. Like, well, the water's calm. I'll just swim over. No, nope, the water is not calm this time. I need to be able to be at peace enough and let God speak to me and say, you're connected to the rope that's still connected to the shore. And the shore is where God would have me be. But if He'd have me in the river, I'm still connected to the rope. As long as I hold on to the one thing that will never change, I'll always be safe. That's the sight I want. That's the revelation that I long for. That's the peace that I pray that God will put on me and everyone here. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the countless examples in your word of people who have failed, for the countless examples of people who have succeeded, countless examples of people who have succeeded, but it appears as if all is lost, for showing them so that we can see through their eyes for revealing mysteries and secrets to us when, when things don't seem right, when people are sick and need healing and we're begging for that healing. Show us the plan, not just the army against us. Show us what we need to have peace in you, no matter our circumstances, not denying our circumstances, but in spite of them. Lord, whatever the plan is, I know it's perfect. But I need, and we need, revelation. Don't let us blindly make our own decisions. Don't let our will overpower your wisdom. I just pray that you will work in us you will bless us with your heart, with your peace, and give us the ability to open the eyes of those around us as well. Thank you, Lord, for all of this. In the name of Jesus, amen.